And so, yeah, so we started out in the Skagit Regional Clinic building, just doing it like one night a month. And people would come. There was no appointments. They would just show up, and they were lined up around the building. And yeah, it was like they would. The volunteers would be there till midnight, and it was just like a rush from what people talk about. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 106 of the Commando Voice. Today, I speak with the executive director of Safe Harbor Clinic. Please welcome Sandy Solis. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice Podcast, where I interview folks around Camino Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Alan and welcome to episode 106 of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Today, I got to speak with Sandy Solis, who is the executive director of Safe Harbor Clinic in Stanwood. And before we get into uh, talking about the episode, um, Safe Harbor was actually nominated by World Magazine, which is a national magazine, um, for the Hope Award. So if you haven't, um, check out the show notes of this podcast episode. There's a link in the description to go and vote for them. Um, And after you listen to this podcast, you're going to see why I'm saying to do so right now. Uh, but they're in the final four, and the clo- the the voting ends very soon. Um, I forget the exact date, but it's it's like less than a week within the release date of this podcast. So, be sure to go do that real quick. Um, now, back to Sandy. So Sandy um, is, like I said, the executive director of Safe Harbor Clinic, and she's been there for a few years now. Um, and she got started with them uh, after being asked to join their team multiple times, uh, three times, actually. Um, so anyways, and, and then it finally worked out that it was the right timing and everything, and she jumped on board. And Safe Harbor, uh, for those of you who don't know, they provide free medical um, for people who are underserved, who are unable to afford the outrageous bills that uh, medical can cost. And they're, they're one of the top ones in the nation. They're really neat. Uh, they're completely volunteer run on the, uh, the people that are part of it. So like the doctors and nurses and stuff. And I just think it's so neat in, in a world that we live in that medical expenses are the number one reason for uh, bankruptcy. Uh, at least I believe that's what it is. Um, but uh, they're either one or two. But like, it's so expensive. And, and some of the most... Not minor things, but things that aren't like major. They're major enough that you need to get taken care of, but not you know major enough to be life threatening unless left for a long time. Can bankrupt can be so expensive um, that your average, even well off person has a hard time affording. Um, I just think it's so cool what they do, the ministry that they have there, um, the work that they do. So um, it was great talking with Sandy to learn more about the clinic, more about what they offer, what they do, all the volunteers, and uh, how they've dealt with COVID and how they've continued to push on past that, uh, and just all the doctors. Um, If you guys listened to my podcast with Dr. Uh, Jimmy Grierson, uh, he is part of that team there as well as on a volunteer basis. And um, anyway, so if you haven't, go check that podcast out too. But um, anyways, I'm going to just stop talking now and just jump into the interview. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sandy Solis. 
Hey Islanders and welcome to another episode of the Kamena Voice. Today I'm here with the Executive Director of Safe Harbor Clinic. Welcome to the podcast, Sandy Solis. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Sandy. Well, I'm a mom of three grown sons, Austin, Nathan, and Adam. I've lived on Camino for 30 years, and I am the executive director of Safe Harbor Free Clinic in Stanwood. Nice. Very cool. So where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Vancouver, Washington, okay. not Canada, and I moved to Olympia when I was seven and lived there until I was in junior high and then moved down to Kelso, Longview area, graduated okay. from high school in Kelso. Um, fun fact, I went to elementary school. We lived by the Capitol building, and so I went to elementary school with Governor Dan Evans' kids. Okay. Nice. Very cool. So... Um, you guys moved, you've always been in Washington, then kind of moved around to little areas. Um, what was that like for you, like growing up in the different areas? Was there one, one of those places that you enjoyed more? That's a really good question. Uh, you know, I enjoyed being in Olympia when we lived there. We because I we lived near the the Capitol building. My friends and I used to ride our bikes around the Capitol, and we'd play on the steps of the Capitol building. Oh, nice. And we got we became friends with the gardener at the state uh, the uh, Capitol Gardens, and it was just it was a really idyllic childhood. It was such a different time. You know, yeah. you could be out and wandering around like that without really having to worry too much. So yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, so then what did you do after graduating from high school? I, I did not go to college. Okay. I went to work and I started working at a land title company. Okay. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I got hired at Cowlitz County in the assessor's office. And I started working as a cartographer. Um, and I did that for about seven years. And then I got married and I moved up to the Everett area, and I went to work for Snohomish County for a couple of years until I had my kids. Okay. So um, as a cartographer, um, and what were you, where were you, were you working all over the state? And then what, what exactly does cartographers do? <laughs> Good question. Cartographers are map drawers. So I, what I did is I drew maps of the county boundary, property boundary lines. I would use the legal descriptions and draw the maps for the property boundaries. So um, because I was in Cowlitz County and it, I was there when Mount St. Helens erupted, oh. after it erupted, we went out um, into the Toodle River area where it had all been flooded with and covered with mud. And we had to go out and try to establish like what was left and where the property boundaries were. So it was a very interesting time. Um, you know, just I remember a gentleman who was trying to salvage what was left of his house mm. and he had a box of personal items and that's all he could find in the mud of his own, of what was left and so that left a really indelible impression on me that I think I carry through to this day um, just that life is fleeting and you know you can't put your put your hope in your possessions because they could be gone in a mud flow in a in a flash so yeah so were you working in that area when that was all, when Mount St. Helens erupted? Or? I was, yeah. What was well, that? I wasn't out working physically, okay, but right. I, yeah, I lived in Kelso, Longview area at the time. And so, yeah, I remember uh, it was a Sunday morning and I remember going with a friend over to one of the bridges between Longview and Kelso over the Cowlitz River and watching pieces of houses and roofs and things float down the river underneath the bridge. And it was, it was just really a strange time. Yeah. And then was it, uh, I mean, it, you were 
that's fairly close to everything. So, like, was it all, like, there was just ash and everything going on? Um, the first eruption, actually, the ash, I think, went more to Yakima and okay. went east. But okay. there there were definitely, you know, following eruptions that we had ash all over the place. And, yeah, we had to wear masks, which, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's here we are again. <laughs> so, um but yeah, it was it was just really interesting, you know, to to be in that world and it was just strange. You know, we used to hike up at Mount St. Helens and go sledding and stuff in the in the wintertime and so to have it just be so changed, it's just it's unrecognizable to those of us who, you know, used it as our playground. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> um obviously it had erupted and everything by the time we were up here. Um but it was you know, so I've never known it as like anything other than like a monument of like what's happened. Um, so I never thought of it as something else that you would have like, like Mount Baker, or, you know, Snoqualmie Pass where you got ski resorts and things like I wouldn't have thought of any of that stuff because it was already gone. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's been long enough now. And, you know, it's just um, it's just everything has changed so much. It looks so different than it used mm-hmm. to be. So, yeah, it was it was a very beautiful place, very quiet because there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of resort action going on up there. Yeah. It was, you know, it was a little more remote and not um, not a destination per se for people that were looking for, you know, full service resorts and that sort of thing. It right. was much more rustic. Yeah. Well, we were we actually just went out there not too long ago um, on a camping trip uh, between Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helens, but we went up to one of the viewpoints of it and just, you know, you see that the massive hole and just everything flowed down. And then just the, um, you know, the looking at it that uh, how many years are we past it? Like still, like it's just there's areas that still haven't like haven't come back. There's no growth. There's mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess my wife was reading that just recently, within the last few years, I guess, the bugs have started coming back, which they said that's a good sign because that means the plants follow after bugs start coming. Yeah, it's interesting. I know at the at the time that it happened, you know, they there was uncertainty as to how long it would take for life to come back, you know, and mm-hmm. there was obviously life that came back, you know, plants that grew and things like that that occurred um, early on, but it is interesting how long it takes for the full cycle of life to come back, you know, yeah. for the bugs to come back and for the ecology to be kind of reset, so right. to speak. Well, and like yeah. we, from the lookout point we were at, it was, I don't remember the name of the lake, but there's this lake that's right there near the base. It looks like kind of right in the path of the flow. You can see like at the end of that lake from the, the, probably half of that lake is still just covered with logs and it's just the logs that were taken out and like they just they're still there and so like certain things that feels like they're frozen in time and like the destruction and everything that happened is still there yeah yeah I've only been up there once since Uh, we went up to the visitor center several years ago now and uh, you know just trying to stand there and recognize like what's what and you know the lake that was there and and like you said the logs that are covering it still and uh, (coughs) after so because I worked for the assessor's office and they had to value the property. That's why we were out there with the maps trying to figure out where property lines were and stuff. So at the end of trying to do all of that and kind of, you know, getting a sense of, of what was left, um, Warehouser Company, as a thank you to us, took us up in their helicopter and flew us over the mountain. And okay. it was really fun to do that, you know, but it was just, again, it was just such a shocking sight to see this mountain that we had that was, you know, we knew it as one way and now it's just is so different. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just, it's hard to find the words to describe when something like that happens, <clears throat> how, how the, 
um, landscape changes and just the things that you've known it to be are so different. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I got to interview Michael Lee now um, on the podcast and talk about his experience. And um, I, the kids are to the age, especially since we just visited there, um, that we want to show them that documentary and stuff and kind of see that whole thing. But yeah, just in like that story was just incredible just hearing about it and being that close and everything was yeah 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 his experience was you know obviously very vivid and you know obviously personal so yeah. I think it's really great that he was able to do a documentary like that it's very well done and yeah and it, it's really depictive of the you know the force and the power of the eruption so right yeah yeah very cool so um, so you were doing that and then, um, then how did you guys end up? So you said you moved north to Everett. Um, how did you guys find out about Camino? Well, we were looking for a house to buy for our first house and we had looked around Everett and Mill Creek and Snohomish and Lake Stevens and we ended up on Camino. I had an aunt and uncle that lived here Okay. and it was pretty much the only place that had affordable housing at the time that we okay. could, that we could buy a home and we knew that we were starting a family and we wanted to be able to afford to live on one income. So we chose Camino Island because we could afford a house here and do it on one income. So, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Especially considering today's, you know, real estate market and stuff. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. I look at my poor kids and I think, I don't know how you guys are going to do this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then you guys found a house and, um, when you guys were moving up here, then was it, because uh, if you were based out of Everett, was your husband working in Everett or? Yeah, he worked at Boeing. Okay. And um, and I was still working for Snohomish County in their assessor's office. Uh, we were expecting our first son when we bought our house. Okay. And so, um, yeah, we were, he just, my husband commuted and, you know, rode, he drove for a while and then he started riding the transit to back and forth to Boeing. So. Okay. Yeah, it's a ways out here, but, you know, I always felt like, well, we live where other people come to vacation, so. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Um, okay, nice. So then um, then during the time you had your kids at your house, did you were you done working and just with kiddos? Yep, I was. I was, uh, I was a wife and a mom, and I was involved with mops back okay. in the day. You yeah. know, that lot, most of my friends pretty much came from the mops group that I had, that I knew, and yeah. um like most of my closest friends today, even two of, or well, actually one of the women who work at Safe Harbor with me, she and I go all the way back to MOPS. Okay. We've known each other since then. We were in leadership at MOPS together. So, oh, very cool. So yeah, so I did MOPS and I was in on leadership there and I got a lot of really great training in leadership by doing ministry like that. Yeah. And then after I was just about ready to send my last child to public school, I'd mm -hmm. already sent my older two to school and then I felt called to homeschool. So I pulled my older two out of school okay. and we homeschooled then. So I became a homeschool mom, which I never <laughs> saw myself ever doing. So I word of advice, never say never, because yep. as soon as you do, you'll find yourself doing that very thing. <laughs> How was that then changing? Um, because one of the things I, I feel like as I as I interview and talk with people, um, I've had moms that um, have transitioned into that and like have loved it and done uh, just continue with that. And then I've had I've interviewed moms who tried it and it just I mean it's a lot of work and they've decided you know what I think I need to go back to work and um, you know change it up just because of the different factors and stuff like that. How was that transition from working in a professional world? 
into transitioning into that for you? That's a great question. I, I found it to be really difficult. Um, I was older when I got married. I was almost 31. And so I had worked for 12, 13 years, you know, and had my own income. And here I found myself, uh, you know, a new mom on one income, relying on my husband for an income. And it was a really difficult transition just to let go of some of my independence. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just the whole mindset of being in the workforce and now being home with little kids and thinking, is is this going to be my conversation for the rest of my life is about what my kids are doing. (laughs) (laughs) So, And it kind of did become that, you know, Um, that's where mops was such a great thing for me because it gave me other women who were in the same situation as I was. And we could talk about, our kids, but we could also talk about our struggles and ourselves, you know, and yeah. not, it, not our whole world didn't revolve around our kids. Yeah. So it was a great way to have that camaraderie with other people, but it was a hard transition. And I think going to homeschooling, like I said, I said, I would never homeschool. Mm-hmm. And then I hear I was homeschooling my kids and it was a battle. Definitely. I always tell young moms that you have to do what you feel like you're called to do. Yeah. I knew that I was called to homeschool. So I kept my focus on that, that I, you know, when the days were hard and my kids weren't cooperating, which was (laughs) honestly most days, (laughs) at least I had three of them. So one of them usually wasn't cooperating. (laughs) Exactly. And, um, so yeah, so I just, I had to stay focused on the fact that I was called. And and I don't think that I look back and I don't know that I gave my kids the best education out there, but at the same time, I gave them the education that I was called to give them. And Mm -hmm. I think that they learned how to learn Yeah, and they learned to be curious and to be self-starters. And so I think that that will carry them through life. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. My, uh, um, I mean, I was homeschooled as well. Um, and my mom just did, you know, homeschooled me and my sister and it like now being a parent and stuff like that and seeing what my wife has to do, um, you know, it is so much work. And I think, um, some homeschool, whether it's homeschool groups or parents or whatever, like you can get in this kind of like, well, you have to do homeschool cause you, know, you can't trust the public school system or like whatever the reasoning is on, or like private schools are too expensive. And, um, I do kind of feel like it is, it needs to really be that choice of each couple. Like there's not a right reason for, even within my kids, it's like one of our kids is going to be going to public school next year. Um, some are going to be homeschooled because there are certain areas they need to work on more that a public school is not going to fit well for them. Um, but one of the, our kids is like, he'll do great in public school. Um, and then our youngest, it's going to be like getting him, you know, started in reading and stuff like that. And so, um, it really is just, it, it depends on the kids and like parents are going to know their kids better than anyone else. So like, um, you know, I think it's important for parents that know they have that freedom. Like if you don't feel like you can do e- either the, what you need to do, or if you feel like it's above you or whatever, like you have that freedom to make that choice. There's not, there's not a wrong choice. It's based on your kids and what you feel is right. I would totally agree. And I usually tell the young moms that, you know, when I have conversations about it, that if you feel called to homeschool, then homeschool your kids because Mm -hmm. they're not going to suffer that much unless you don't do any school with them. You know, okay, that could cause a bit of a problem, but (laughs) you know, in general, your kids will be fine. You know, you're going to struggle. You're going to have battles. They're going to have battles in public school. Mm -hmm. Uh, The teachers, they are obviously, they're trained to teach 
but not every child learns the same way. So your child could struggle equally in public school as they would in homeschool. So you just have to do whatever you think is best for your child, like you said, and then be engaged with your kids. That's what I always tell people is I don't care where you send them to school, whether it's home or public school or private school, you need to be engaged with your kids and be aware of what they're doing and what they're learning. Because if you let it go to somebody else, then now you've lost that ability as they're parent to be able to speak into their life. You're letting other people have control of that. And I try to warn younger families against that because they're your children given to you to raise and you need to be the one to make those important decisions for them. Right. Yeah. And and it is, you know, it's your time with kids. I mean, granted, we're our parents, none of our kids are out of the house or anything. Our oldest are 10. Um, But it is that like, we've got like, not that much longer before they're, I mean, really you have till they're 15, 16. And once they can drive, like they're kind of out of the house, even though they're there, they're not. (laughs) You are so right. And I, I have often told my friends, I said, I think that that launching my children has been the hardest stage of parenting. Mm. You know, when they were little, it felt hard. Okay, yeah. but I could tell them what to do and they would do it because I could make them do it. You know, <laughs> My oldest son said, well, you might have been able to make me do it, but I was rebelling inside. I said, well, that's your problem if you're rebelling <laughs> on the inside because you still obeyed, you know. So, but as they get older, you're absolutely right, is that once they're 16 and they start to drive, they're pretty much out there doing whatever that they want to do, you know, and you can't police them. You cannot make them do something that's not already um, built into them. Like you have, and you still can't, but you can build in values and, and things that you think are important for them so that when they're out there making decisions, they have something to draw from Mm -hmm. to make wise choices. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's uh, one of the, uh, we followed a lot of like Dave Ramsey's, uh, stuff when it came to like financial stuff, but um, we read a lot of his books, and uh, one of the books said like, "Remember, you're trying to raise good adults, not good children," <laughs> and so like that's your goal. <laughs> yeah, and that is so true. And I think you know one of the things that I think I've learned is that um, I really I can't make my kids do anything. Mm-hmm. I you know I can't I can't dictate the choices they're going to make. Mm-hmm. As much as I want to think that I can, I can't. That's a heart issue that they have to decide. Mm-hmm. And it's between them and God, you know, what they're going to do in their yeah. life. Um, but I would like to think that I could influence it and have control over it. And I can only influence it as much as they'll allow me to. Yeah. But you have no control over your kids, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. You just guide them and try to correct them when you can. And, right. And just pray for them that they'll make wise choices. But yeah. Yeah. One, yeah, it, it, it's interesting that, I mean, we've been, like, there's been parents and kids since the beginning of time, and, but every new parent that has kids, like, despite thousands of years of knowledge of being passed down generationally, like, there is still, when you have your own kids, you're starting fresh. Like, you've read every parenting book, you think you're ready, and you're not, <laughs> and then, like, I feel like you have to learn all these new things, and it's not until you're at done that you realize, oh, what my parents were saying was good advice. I should have listened to them, but I probably didn't enough times throughout. <laughs> oh, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I feel from the beginning of time, you know, it's just, I, I think that I was a little, because I was older when I got married, 
I had a lot of time to observe my friends with their kids. And I thought I had all the answers <laughs> until I had my own. And then I'm like, I don't know anything. <laughs> I learned squat from everybody else. You know, I thought I had it correctly all laid out. And then my first son came along and he was just like, wait, they didn't, I didn't see that with their kids. How come he's doing this? You know, I think it's just, you have to, um, it's all, it's like a test project. Yeah. And then they're grown up and you're like, Hmm, I wonder how much I did that was good versus how much I did that. It was kind of messed up, but you know, my kids seem to have turned out fine and you're a great example of, of good parenting. And so I think, you know, you do your best mm-hmm. and that's all you have can do. Yeah. You can't, you can't do what you're not equipped to do and you can't, um, if you, I think the best thing is to be teachable mm-hmm. so that you're open to correction from your kids. <laughs> like yeah. when they get older, my boys, they pretty much tell me straight up what they think, you know, and it's hard to take sometimes, yeah. but I need it. And I know that I can probably trust my boys more than anybody else to tell me the truth. Yeah. Um, because if, you know, they're, they're pretty much, they have an open opportunity to be able to tell me the truth and yeah. I may not like it, but I trust them to be able to do that because they've been equipped to do that. So very cool. Yeah. So, um, after you've sent off your, uh, I guess that's a question. Um, so safe Harbor, was that something that came around before the kids were out of the house or was that afterwards? No. So, um, about five years ago, almost six years ago now, I went through a major life change. My husband left our marriage. And so I was, all of a sudden, you know, there had been this stay-at-home mom, homeschool mom all these years, and the career that I had was had changed so much. And it wasn't something I really wanted to go back to anyways, mm-hmm. to be a cartographer. <laughs> and I had a photography business going okay. um, that was doing it on the side. And so I was able to go for a couple of years doing that, but I just couldn't really make a living at it. Mm-hmm. And so I just wasn't sure what I was going to do next. Well, about a year into after my husband left, it wasn't even that long, actually, I had a friend who called and said, hey, there's this job opening at Safe Harbor for a director, and I think it'd be perfect for you. I think you should apply for it. So I looked at the job description, and I'm like, yeah, not a chance, because <laughs> there's like nothing on here that I am even qualified for. And so, and I just wasn't at a place where I could handle doing that, yeah. just emotionally. Mm-hmm. So the next year... Another friend called and said, hey, there's this job opening at Safe Harbor. I think you should apply for it. And I'm like, I'm still not qualified for it. And I still wasn't in a place where I could just felt like I could try to even think about doing something Mm -hmm. like that. So the year after that, now we're into three times. Sandy Erickson, who was the interim director, they had some turnover in leadership at Safe Harbor. And that's why there was all these openings. And so Sandy Erickson had stepped in as the interim executive director. Her husband, Keith, is our medical director at the clinic. And so she Mm. had stepped in, but she homeschools her kids or homeschooled Mm. them. She was down to her last son of homeschooling, and she said, I just need to finish well, and I can't work full time and do this. And so I've been praying about this and God keeps putting your name on my heart. And so I, to the point where I can't sleep. And so she said, so I decided I better call you. And I'm just like, I started laughing and I said, well, let me tell you, this is the third time in three years that someone has called me for this same job and I'm still not qualified for it. But I said, I'm in a different place now. I feel like I could, like I could wrap my mind around this kind of a thing. And so I said, I will pray about it and I will come and walk through part of a day with you just to see what it's like. I had never been there. 
Okay. I knew what they were. Um, I knew what mission that they did. Yeah. But I really, I have no medical background. Um, I tried to avoid when my kids would have stitches and things. I tried to avoid having to deal with that. I'd, you know, make their dad take them. And so, <laughs> um, so anyways, I went and I spent some time with her and I said, okay, well, I'll go ahead and do a resume mm-hmm. thinking they're never going to hire me. And so I turned in my resume and they called me in for an interview with some of the board members. And so I went in for the interview and I walked out thinking they're for sure not going to ever hire me <laughs> after that. So, and sure enough, the next day, Jimmy Grierson called and said, you know, we'd like to offer you the job. And so I said, okay. And it was, it's been, I've almost been there three years okay. in August. And, um, it has been a journey. I walked in that door and I feel like I just knew absolutely nothing. Um, but the board has been so gracious with me and the staff, the volunteers have all been really gracious. And there's still days that I sit there and I think, I just do not even know where I'm going. (laughs) But one thing it has done is it has really brought me to my knees to pray and ask God for direction for where are we going? I don't know what to do. You need to show me. Mm -hmm. And it's kept me really seeking him in a great way. Yeah. So, So just so all of our listeners can catch up, what does Safe Harbor do? Okay, so Safe Harbor is a free medical clinic for people without insurance or who are underinsured. Underinsured meaning that they have like a $7,000 deductible and they can't afford to pay for the deductible or even some insurances I think cover like major medical but not wellness checks or maybe only one wellness check. And so so that's where we come in is that we have 116 volunteers and um, fortunately they're not all there at the same time, (laughs) but we, uh, they, we have um, nurse practitioners. We have um, MDs and DOs, which is doctors of osteopathy, I think is what they're called. Um, We have nurses that um, are MAs, RNs, LPNs, CNAs. We have phlebotomists. So, yeah, so we have a full staff of people who all volunteer. There's four paid staff and everybody else is all volunteer. And so um, a typical evening we have two same-day clinics a week on Wednesdays and Fridays, and they're in the evening, so people call in the morning, and they leave their name and phone number and why they need to be seen, and we call them back, and we make appointments for the evening clinic. Okay. And then we can see the number of people we can see is based on how many volunteer providers we have. Okay. So if we have one provider, we can see up to maybe eight patients in an evening. If we have two providers, we can see, you know, 14 to 16 patients, depending on what their needs are. But then they come in the evening, and our providers you know, we'll see them and we treat all sorts of things. We have a chronic care clinic that, uh, is for people that have like diabetes and hypertension and, you know, thyroid issues and yeah. just any ongoing kind of chronic condition. Yeah. And then we have a podiatrist who volunteers. We have a respiratory doctor that volunteers. We have a general surgeon who volunteers and she will, um, she'll do procedures like, you know, removing skin tags and, you know, doing minor biopsies and that sort of thing. Um, We have a a cardiologist who started volunteering with us. So we have a cardiology clinic. We have a dental clinic that when it's non-COVID times, we partner with the University of Washington dental students and the um, technical, let's see, I'm trying to think what they're actually called, the Career and Technical Academy up in Mount Vernon by the college up there. They have a dental assisting program. And so we'll 
collaborate with both of those groups and we'll do a dental clinic for people who don't have access to dental care. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, oh, we have an ultrasound clinic and we also have a women's clinic and, um, we have lab services that we can do that are, uh, supplied by LabCorp. So they, yeah, they, they donate the, the, um, lab services. So we have phlebotomists who, you know, do blood draws and that sort of thing and send out the labs to LabCorp. So yeah, very, a lot going on there. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. So then, um, when you took over then, uh, first of all, I guess, how long has Safe Harbor been going on? We started in 2008, technically became a nonprofit in 2009. Okay. So we just had our, what is that, 12th anniversary? Okay. I think that's what it was. Um, And so, yeah, so we started out in the Skagit Regional Clinic building, Mm -hmm. just doing it like one night a month. Okay. And people would come. There was no appointments. They would just show up and they were lined up around the building. And yeah, it was like they would, the volunteers would be there till midnight. And it was just like a rush from what people talk about. Uh, and then it went to, I think two nights a month. And then eventually it just expanded enough to where they started doing appointments and then recognized that, you know, we have, we're, we just can't keep using this space. We need to do something. So at that point they found our current location, which is across the parking lot from the YMCA Okay. up on the hill. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice. Okay. So then, um, <clears throat> so obviously you've used, so three years we're 20 months into COVID. Um, so you know, <laughs> yeah. a year of like normal-ish. Uh, and then we start getting into COVID and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, first of all, when were you guys kind of like, I know some medical people were a little bit ahead of the curve and like they were hearing the stories coming out of China and stuff like that. And like, this is going to be bigger. What was it for you guys? When did you guys kind of start hearing about it and feel like it was coming? Well, so our medical director, Keith Erickson, is the provider who diagnosed the first case of COVID in the U.S. And actually, I think in the Western Hemisphere, but he was the one who saw patient zero and diagnosed that patient. And so I heard about it then. Okay. You know, I mean, I've been hearing about it on the news, but I heard about it then. So, okay, it's here. It's real. Uh, it took a few, you know, it took a little while for, I think, for everybody to kind of lock in that, yeah, this is in our country and we need to take care, you know, we need to start dealing with this. Right. So when things shut down, Safe Harbor shut down as well for three weeks. And then in that three weeks, we started looking at what do we need to do to open up? So we signed up for a telehealth program and we started offering telehealth to our patients. Okay. And um, we had a couple providers that were willing to do that. And so they just, you know, came to the clinic and did telehealth. And then we did that for, I can't remember how long, I would say maybe four or five weeks. Okay. And then we had our medical director and Dr. Grierson had both at that point been vaccinated. And so they said, well, we'll start seeing patients. So we started doing screening of patients. We wouldn't let anyone come who had respiratory issues, um, but... Aside from that, like if they like we did temperature checks at the door and that yeah. sort of thing to kind of protect our volunteers, but slowly we were able to kind of open up the clinic and start building back to having people come into the clinic. Okay. So we did a hybrid of telehealth and, and in-clinic visits, you know, just trying to figure out 
what people were comfortable with. Yeah. Some people weren't comfortable leaving their houses. Right. Other people wanted to get out, and if it meant going to the doctor, they would go. You know. And, <laughs> and I think there was also fear about just being in a clinic, and you know, is yeah. it safe? Is it sanitary enough? Could I get sick? And, right. And <clears throat> excuse me. And so, I think just working through some of those things, we were able to help people kind of get used to coming back into the clinic again. So. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So then, now that we're like I said, 20 months into it, where are you guys at? How did that kind of affect you guys? I'm sure donations and stuff went down. How did you guys deal with and get through everything? You know, our donors, honestly, um, I think that they were so faithful to us. They helped carry us along through that time. Mm -hmm. It was, it has been a challenge for all nonprofits, Yeah, you know, but I think that a lot of donors initially have stepped up I think now I feel like we're seeing a little bit more of a drop-off than what we did through COVID, okay. through the heart of COVID. Um, for us as, a, as just an organization, you know, we had to make modifications like everybody in the world has had to make, mm-hmm. you know, putting up uh, screens and things like that so that there's plexiglass between you and Everything. your, you know, pe- exactly, you know. <laughs> and so there's just a lot of that that we had to adjust to. Um, we did do COVID vaccinations for a period of time. We okay. vac- we did about 950 some doses of vaccine okay. and um, tried to reach the underserved was our goal. We, we had a lot of variety of people, but we tried to, to give preference a little bit to the underserved population who had a little harder time getting access to it. So that was, it was a lot of work. It was a very, very busy time. You know, I think my staff and I, we were at the clinic like nonstop, you know, but at the same time, it was looking back at it. I'm so glad that we did it. It was a great opportunity, not only to vaccinate people, but also to give exposure to Safe Harbor for those who needed to know about Mm it. Um, and for people who maybe have insurance, but knew people who didn't, yeah. and they could take our information and spread the word to people that, hey, here's this free clinic, and they're in Stanwood, and you can you can go get free medical care there when you need it. So yeah. that was great. Yeah, that's great. Um, th- you know, I think that is something, um, you know, just we, we see that within, I mean, one of the number one causes of bankruptcy in America is medical debt. And um you know, there's emergencies that happen. And if you don't fall into this group that happens to have the right medical thing that covers whatever the thing, like it, it, you can't get help. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's lower levels. And the fact that you guys are able to do this from volunteers and donations is just incredible to me that, that there is a group that is out there helping these people that in any other place would not be able to get this type of care. Yeah, it is. It's a very exceptional thing. There are, there is a network of free clinics across the nation, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, even with Obamacare, there are still people who do not like they make $50 more than what their quality, what qualifies them to get free Obamacare. Right. And as a person who I've had medical insurance my whole life until I suddenly didn't have it, you know, when the (laughs) breadwinner left and had, and took his insurance with him, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was scary at the time. And, and I looked at, at the, the plans that were out there and it was like $570 a month at that time for a $7,000 deductible plan. I didn't even know what my income was going to be, let alone to be able to pay that. Yeah. And so I ended up going with a healthcare cooperative, Mm -hmm. um, which has so far worked out well. But I look at these people who find themselves in this situation and what do they do there? There's like this gap in, um, in ability between ability to pay 
and the government stepping in and helping. And, and it's just, what do you do when you're in that gap? You have no alternative. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just been a great thing. Yeah. No, we, we definitely have known and, and know people that um, because a lot of these programs that are supposed to help people that are underserved or in need aren't scaling, they're, they're drop-offs. And if you do too many things, you know, you're trying to work hard so you can get out of that air, that space, they just cut you off of the knees once you hit that threshold. And like, instead of it being a scaling, like, well, we don't cover a hundred percent, we cover 90 now. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just seems like that would make more sense. Well, you're right. It would. And so here's a classic example. So we have a patient who ended up in the hospital a while back and he was three days away from getting insurance coverage. I think he had gotten a job that was going to provide insurance coverage and he didn't have it yet. So they got a bill for a, like, it was $150,000, I think it was, from the hospital. Okay, these are people who, they can't afford that. I mean, who can really? Maybe a few people, but most of us can't. (laughs) And they were just, you know, what are we going to do? They were, they were just shocked. And, you know, you hit, if you hit enough barriers in life, you just can't even understand how to get around those barriers. Right. So when we found out about it, some of our staff stepped in and they started advocating for them and they got, they got the um, hospital to reduce the cost of it. And then they also, I think his insurance then picked up the, the balance of it, excuse me, um, so that he was able, so the family basically walked away not having to pay $150,000, wow. you know, yeah. between the hospital reducing it and then his insurance kicking in a little bit early. Yeah. So, but if he hadn't had that insurance, what would he have done? Right. You know, then you're relying on charity care through the hospitals and some hospitals have more of that than others. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so before we started the podcast, you were talking about some, uh, you guys have been recognized within an organization. Talk about that a little bit. Well, so there's a a news magazine called world magazine Mm -hmm. and they're a, Uh, Christian news magazine, so that's their worldview perspective, they have what they call the Hope Award. And the Hope Award is an annual award that they give to an organization or ministry that they believe is showing effective compassion to their community. So the way it works is you're nominated um, for this award, and they go through the nominations, they narrow it down to eight, they send a reporter and Um, They have a podcast also called The World and Everything in It, and they sent a reporter out from the podcast and one from the magazine to those eight organizations. We had been nominated, and we made the cut for the eight organizations. So we had um, a reporter and a podcast reporter come out and spend a day at Safe Harbor interviewing our volunteers and staff, and they spent an evening at a clinic. So we were like, well, that was really cool. Well, then we (laughs) found out that we were in the final four that they narrowed it down to. And those final four are all featured in their magazine. And then the subscribers vote on which one that they think is the most, um, showing the best job of doing effective compassion. Mm -hmm. So we are in the final four. There's voting going on right now. Okay. Um, You can go to, I think it's worldmeg.com. I think it is, is their website. I should probably look that up. I'll get <laughs> you it can in the post show notes. It. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can go on there. You can read about the four different nonprofits. Three of them are in California, and then we are the fourth. Uh, you can read about them, and then you can vote for the one that you think is showing the most 
um, effective compassion to their community. So it's it's a huge honor. Yeah. Um, we were just surprised. And, you know, I'm looking at the other three and I'm thinking, wow, everybody's doing such great work. So how do you ever decide? So that's where the readers come in. They yeah. get to decide. Yeah, very cool. What's do you know when the voting is through? It's uh, through. I think it's through the like the thirteenth of August. I think it is. Okay. All right. I'm just trying to map this out in my head of when this podcast will go live. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, that's very cool. Um, cool. So that's that's going on right now. Then yes, yes, and so the the winner um, receives a ten thousand dollar award. Okay. Um, each of the, they just called me the other day and said, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but each of the four finalists are assured of a $2,000, um, award okay. as of just making the finalists. So okay. it's just, it's very overwhelming, you yeah. know, to be recognized <laughs> little, little safe Harbor in Stanwood, but it's just such a, it's such an honor. And I think that we're all very humbled by it that, yeah. that we would be recognized for something like this. You know, I think we all look at what we're doing is not in the big picture of the world, but is in the little picture of, we have people around us that are suffering and that are in need, and what can we do to reach out and to touch their lives and to give them hope? Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Um, so, what do you see as the future of Safe Harbor Clinic? Well, so you know, I think each day. One thing that I've learned by being at Safe Harbor, <clears throat> excuse me, is that every day is a new day. There, there are no two days alike, <laughs> and I don't think I I love that because I like change. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I've ever been anywhere where it's, there's just so much variety. So as I, as I approach each day, I find myself literally on my knees just saying, okay, God, what do you have for us today? You know, where are you taking us today? What do you, you know, show us what you're doing and we want to walk in it. So that's what I would say about our future is whatever God leads us to is what we're going to do. Um, so we do have a few ideas of things that we think would be great to do. One is that we would like to have access to a medical van and be able to go out into some of the outlying communities like Darrington and Concrete and, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of some of those other little places, yeah, you know, that are up yeah. out of the way yeah. where, because people, there's a lot of people that have transportation problems. They can't get to where they need to be. Yeah. And, you know, if you need medical care, but you have no transportation to get there, then you really have no choice. Right. You know, you're just going to decline. And so we would love to be able to go out to <clears> some of those small communities and and um, meet the needs of the people in the community. So yeah. that's one of the things we'd like. We are looking at the idea of doing a Suboxone clinic, which is to treat opioid addictions. Okay. And so we're looking into doing that. And the other thing that we really feel a burden for is just the... the um, mental health component of, of healthcare is, yeah. you know, and, and it's a difficult one because affordability is, it's just difficult. There's, you know, you mentioned sliding scale. Yeah. There are really, there's very few places that do sliding scale for mental health. Right. And, you know, unless you're in a crisis mm -hmm. and we would like to see people not get to a crisis, we yeah. would like to see, um, people, be able to work through the anxieties and the depressions and the things that afflict them. Yeah. We would love to see them be able to work through that before they get to the point of crisis. Right. So the nonprofits as a group here in the community, we're starting to work on a mental health initiative and trying to figure out how can we help our community and especially the underserved in our community 
um, who don't have the ability to afford to pay for counseling and yeah. treatments and things like that. What can we do to help? Yeah. So we're starting to look at that, but it's such a huge thing. Yeah. Well, and I think <clears throat> this is something I've, I've actually feel like I've hit on a few different times throughout the podcast recently is um, we, when you get to a certain age, when you, when you're young, um, like you break a bone or you, you do something, but you know, you're going to recover and that you're going to get past it. Right. Um, as you get older, um, you start realizing there's certain, like whether it's a chronic thing or an injury that you probably won't actually heal from or whatever, like you start getting into this time where you realize, oh, I'm just going to live with this the rest of my life. With mental health, there's certain mental health issues that they don't go. It's not something where you can just go, okay, if you do X, Y, Z, you'll fix it. Like it's long term. Mm -hmm. And to think of these people that are suffering with this and they can't get the help they need. Um, and, but it's so hard for some group or anyone to come in and say, we're going to help that person because you know you're signing on for life. And if it's someone that has mental health issues and they're in their 30s, that's a long road and a very expensive road to help one person. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, that is definitely, it's a huge need in our world, um, uh, in our community, uh, in our state. We can see that a lot. Um, in Seattle, you see a lot of that. Um, but yeah, I think it's a huge need. I agree. And I think my personal uneducated opinion is that I think that there's been such a, such a shift in our culture that there's like a culture of anxiety almost and a culture that, that kind of, of depression. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, because when I was young, like I knew people who struggled and I, and I'm sure that there were <laughs> one, my, one of my best friends, her sister, um, sadly, committed suicide. And so obviously it happened, but it didn't seem to be as prevalent as it is today. And I just feel like there's a, maybe this culture of, of, um, I don't know how to say it, you know, yeah. like, like a culture of suicide almost, which sounds terrible to say, but I just think like, what is it that's causing this and what can we do to change this culture in yeah. our community yeah. and hopefully in the world? Yeah. But there is something that is just making people struggle more. They feel more hopeless. I think some of it is just our, our culture is so polarized anymore, you know, to not to get into political right. stuff, but just but in, in general, in everything, it's like polarized and you can't even have a conversation about anything with people. Right. It's like, you know, no matter what, you're either, you're either wrong or unless you agree with them, then you're right. Like yeah. you can't just have an opinion that's different. You're right. either right or wrong. And yeah. it's like, whatever happened to disagreeing and still being friends, you know? Right. So, yeah. And I, I do think the other thing is, um, there's, there's massive benefits to what the internet has brought. Um, and even like social media in connecting people. Um, but I think what we've seen is that, we now hear about the suicides that happen in across the country. We hear about suicides that happen in other countries. We are bombarded with negative news because that's what sells. That's what makes people come back to the news is, well, what happened to that one situation that was going on? It's that shock factor. Um, so we are bombarded with negative news now to a scale that we never were in the past because you wouldn't have heard about it. You, and I'm not trying to say like it's not important of what's going on around the world. But if something terrible happens in a country on the other side of the world, that is a, an incident that is a singular, like, it was just some person that did something, like a shooting or something, and it was a, a one-off thing. It doesn't benefit us to hear about that here. Right. It just right. makes your, it brings your day down, and it also makes it so you're now going into the world 
thinking it's a worse place. And like, instead of having this positive, like we're moving in a good direction, this is where we want to go. We're hearing these negative things over and over and over. And I think that's, I don't know that our, you know, it's that whole thing. Like we've, we've, the way we operate as a group, as a, you know, survived thousands of years, like some of those things, I don't know that our brains are necessarily meant to handle that much stress and that much negative things. Right. Um, I think so. I totally agree with you. I think that social media, the 24 hour news, all of that stuff, like people just need to learn to turn it off Mm -hmm. because it, it just, I believe that it's reprogrammed our thinking into that. It's becoming normal that, you know, that depression is normal. Okay. It is normal if you struggle with it, but having, you know, I think it induces anxiety and it just has created this culture of um, inability to deal with life for mm-hmm. one thing. And I think it's because there's no hope to it. Mm-hmm. It's all depressing. And yeah. that's why I, I literally, I my start my day listening to the podcast of the world and everything in it because they give the top news headlines, but it's from a more positive perspective and they'll have commentary and stuff on there. But for me, that's been my answer to mm-hmm. get the world news, but to do it in a positive way, mm-hmm. because I just, I had to stop watching the news. It yeah. was just too depressing. Yeah. So, and I don't struggle with mental, you know, mental health problems. So, mm-hmm. you know, I th- feel like, you know, my, my mental health needs aren't what some other people's are. So if they're watching this stuff and taking right. it in as a steady diet, like it's just feeding into what they're already struggling with. Right. So, yeah, yeah. no, totally agree. So, um, that's really neat. That's neat that you guys are looking at that. Um, I hope that that you know, somehow you can find a way to financially make that work. Yeah. Yeah. We've looked at the idea of doing like lay counseling, you know, but anymore, like I've been told by a couple of pastors from the churches locally, like you have to be careful calling it counseling because people, you know, if they call it counseling, then, then you could open yourself up to lawsuits and things like that. If you give counsel that someone misunderstands, you know, or whatever, or whatever it's, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, I don't want to shy away from something just because of that. I'm yeah. thinking, well, I can't control what other people are going to do, yeah. but we need to we need to help people. And so if that does happen, then we'll have to deal with it when it does. We're not going to, you know, willingly walk in and go, yeah, we're opening up to this, <laughs> you know, but at the same time like you have to be able to help people and how do you do that if you're not willing to risk? Yep. So I feel like that's the that's the thing is we just have really been trying to figure out like what is the answer to this? Mm-hmm. Um we don't have a set answer yet, but we're open to just see what happens and where it goes. And mm-hmm. um, just trying to help our patients is our first priority yeah. who are struggling with this, but then to go beyond that to the community. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. Okay. So the first one is what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most over the last three months? Well, I would say <laughs> it's not really a purchase. I, I went to Yakima and I spent a night there and I took my bike and I rode bike for the, you know, off and on th- for the 24 hours I was over there and nice. I sat in the warm weather and I thought it was like the best $100 I've spent in a long <laughs> time. It was a little bit of an R&R and, you know, it was, it was exactly what I needed. Perfect. That's great. All right. Pretend you have a friend coming from out of town. What would their first first day look like here? Well, not to give you a plug, but I am going to give you a plug because I really think that like I love bringing people to the commons here, mm-hmm. to the bakery. My friend Lydia is the one who's kind of oversees the artist loft. Yeah. And I love bringing people up here and introducing them to my friend. <laughs> and and um, 
I just think it's a great place to come and enjoy something from the bakery and hang out and just to kind of wander around a little bit. I'd probably take them in, obviously, to show them a tour of Safe Harbor and kind of show what we're about. I would probably have them lunch at the cookie mill and then go to one of the beaches and just hang out for the rest of the day or hike or something. Very cool. If it's raining, we'd go to La Conner. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Who is an interesting or fascinating person in this community that I should interview next? I don't know if you've already interviewed him, but Dean Hirsch. Okay, I've heard of him. And yes, I've, he yeah. um, he was is retired from World Vision, and he was an executive who was an international. Um, I don't know exactly what his title was. Sorry, Dean, if you listen to this, <laughs> I don't remember what your title was, but uh, he's been in probably every country in the world. He has sat on committees for the United Nations. He's met with world leaders, and is just fascinating. Yeah. His life has been fascinating. Um, cool. You know, for World Vision. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very cool. All right. And what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Well, probably to be yourself instead of who you think other people want you to be. Mm -hmm. And um, that life is unpredictable and that my vantage point is always going to be limited. So I need to trust God because he sees the beginning from the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And then to have more fun with my my family because my kids are going to be grown up and gone in a flash of time. And in the, when the years of raising them, you don't think that, but when you look back, you recognize how quick it went. Yeah. So, you know, lighten up a little bit and have more fun. <laughs> nice. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Yeah. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Sandy Solis for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. Remember, If you haven't already, go check out the link in the description of this podcast to go vote for the Safe Harbor Clinic uh, on the the World uh, Magazine website. Again, that link is in the show notes, so be sure to do that. Um, And if you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to CaminoCommons.com slash podcast. That's CaminoCommons.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.